Unfuck the Poor is what you're listening to. And maybe you clicked down just the right rabbit hole on a rainy day, or maybe you've been listening along while I fumbled through names and places I have never had to pronounce out loud. Maybe you wonder how and why the poor are fucked, and when, if ever, I will explain how to unfuck them. Now, for that last part, you can consider this. For every example given for how economics fucks the poor, the solution is quite literally to do the opposite. What would a money-hungry, cock-gobbling, neoliberal ass-clown do? And then, poof, not do that thing. Of course, life isn't that simple. Or is it? One thing's for sure. Milton Friedman is an asshole. A major one of these programs, the most expensive, is Social Security. Now, Social Security is one of the most extreme cases of misleading advertising that I know of. It's not social, and it's not security. There is no way in which a union can simultaneously increase the number of jobs and the pay. If you look at the way in which ethnic minorities made advances, it was not through ethnic solidarity. It was through the free market. The equal, the women who go around today urging equal pay for equal work are being anti-feminist. Because it is one thing to have free immigration to jobs. It is another thing to have free immigration to wealth. That is why the operation of the free market is so essential, not only to promote productive efficiency, but even more to foster harmony and peace among the peoples of the world. Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 13, Milton Friedman is an Asshole. Now, you might find this surprising, but I do actually agree with Milton Friedman regularly, and you might too. Friedman was a proponent of ending drug prohibition and, in general, reducing the number of activities considered, quote, illegal, the result of which was inundation and growth of the criminal justice system increasingly run by government contractors that, to Friedman, simply relied on nanny state financing. He also saw the International Monetary Fund as being, on the whole, irresponsible and, again, a nanny state solution to the private enterprises that were losing money on their Mexican investments. He recognized that it was the Mexican citizens who were getting screwed as a result of government-backed institutions enabling financial institutions. He was also outspoken against the suicidal tendencies of corporations to make short-sighted campaign contributions, citing Warren Buffett's practice of donating to charities of shareholders' preferences. There are many other reasons that Friedman is an asshole, like for all of the above, the solution was expanded private markets, most notably his lifelong obsession with privatizing the public school system. Now, all of Friedman's theories, and indeed all modern economist theories, revolve around that idea of the fully rational human. And now, I have actually danced around this concept from the very start of the book without giving it a name, because... It is a dumb name. The fully rational human making all these rational economic decisions has a name. Homo economicus. Isn't that dumb? It is also bullshit. Quote, For most of the past two centuries, economic thinking has been dominated by the concept of homo economicus. The hypothetical economic man knows what he wants. His preferences can be expressed mathematically in terms of a utility function, and his choices are driven by rational calculations about how to maximize that function, whether consumers are deciding between cornflakes or shredded wheat, or investors are deciding between stocks and bonds. Those decisions are assumed to be based on comparisons of the marginal utility or the added benefit the buyer would get from acquiring a small amount of the alternatives available. It's easy to make fun of this story. Nobody, not even Nobel-winning economists, really makes decisions that way. But most economists, myself included, nonetheless find economic man useful, with the understanding that he's an idealized representation of what we really think is going on. People do have preferences, even if those preferences can't really be expressed by a precise utility function. They usually make sensible decisions, even if they don't literally maximize utility. You might ask, why not represent people the way they really are? The answer is that abstraction, strategic simplification, is the only way we can impose some intellectual order on the complexity of economic life. And the assumption of rational behavior has been a particularly fruitful simplification. End quote. And that is from Paul Krugman's Economics Textbook. This whole time, we've been assuming that economists were just assholes, but there it is in plain English. The guiding economic principles that are imposed on our daily lives, our political choices, and corporate actions are all understood to be unrealistic, and yet we employ them anyway. 
We elect people, well-intentioned or not, on the basis that they understand how all these things work together, when they do not. And indeed, the unelected people who write equations about them and advise on economic policy know that they are more or less conducting exercises in futility. Now, I should have warned you at the beginning, but this is an interactive chapter. There are a bunch of uh, charts that I need you to refer to. I'll try to explain them, but we have to get on to our first chart, and that is Milton Friedman's consumption model, which makes sense if you're a fucking idiot, and it basically explains how humans spend money. So let's dive in. If I am spending my money on Air Force Ones that I am going to wear, I am going to try to achieve the best value at the best price. I will buy the best Air Force Ones for the least amount of dollars, and my money savings will make Steve Mnuchin jealous. But if I am spending my money on Air Force Ones that someone else is going to wear, I will most likely still seek out the best price, but settle on lower quality because I don't have to worry about wearing them and you'll be fine. Now those two things I can kind of go along with, almost. I have some complaints, but here's where Friedman's whole diagram goes off the rails. Now, if I am spending someone else's money on Air Force Ones for myself, I will buy the best Air Force Ones, but I won't worry about the price. It's not my money, and because I'm an asshole, I'll just spend more. And because this is a four-box matrix, maybe if you've drawn it out, you've already come to the final box. It is me spending someone else's money to buy Air Force Ones for another someone else. And this decision-making goes like this. We are all fucking idiots, so if someone gives me money to buy another person's Air Force Ones, I'm going to spend the most amount of money possible on the shittiest shoes possible because, again, we're all fucking stupid. The ignorant and asshole tendencies of homo economicus, a fiction used by economists specifically because it is a simplified abstract that makes their jobs easier, have been used to treat American consumers and citizens like the ignorant assholes it thinks we are, and in the worst case, allows us to be. <clears throat> 2008 housing crash. The problem is that because homo economicus is all of us, there is no distinction between people who need a thing and who want a thing, because needs and wants do not factor into Homo economicus's price and considerations. All transactions are considered once, no matter how necessary they may be to survival. Therefore, Friedman's model can be used to explain how some people go about choosing a new car, gas mileage, resale value, reliability, warranty, as well as how to justify not spending on very important things like universal health care or free education. Because we are best at spending money on ourselves, that's the pure definition of capitalist individualism, we therefore cannot be trusted to spend other people's money on other people. Social programs will always be a losing proposition because one, we are fucking idiots, and two, Friedman said so. More realistically, these things will always be a losing proposition because as a matter of being free, their dollar value will be calculated as an immediate loss. This, of course, ignores the advice many students are given growing up that education, health, and home ownership pay off in the long run. Unfortunately, Friedman's spending matrix is dead-ass wrong, and it's also suspiciously similar to a fun game theory model called the Prisoner's Dilemma. And the original version goes like this. Two members of a criminal organization, the members are named A and B, they are arrested and imprisoned. Each prisoner, A and B, is in solitary confinement with no means of communicating with the other. Now, the prosecutors offer each prisoner a bargain. They are given the opportunity to either betray the other or to cooperate with the other by remaining silent. Now, the possible outcomes are, if A and B betray each other, each of them serves two years in prison. If A betrays B, but B remains silent, a will be set free, and B will serve three years in prison. If A remains silent, but B betrays A, A will serve three years in prison, and B will be set free. If A and B both remain silent, both of them will serve only one year in prison, on the lesser charge. In its original form, the prisoner's dilemma is meant to demonstrate the power of cooperation and can be understood as the interaction between two parties to achieve a mutually beneficial outcome. The kicker is that both parties are uninformed about the actions of the other. They can't communicate and they do not know how the other person has acted. The cooperation then is blind and decisions based on blind, uninformed circumstances leads to the unlikely preferred solution, defection.
If A or B defects, they have the opportunity to gain something from the other without having to give up their own thing. Defecting is a selfish move that hedges against the other person defecting. Now, if both defect, neither gets anything. But if one defects and the other does not, they have gotten an advantage over the other. In the traditional prisoner's dilemma, the two prisoners are faced with snitching on the other. If neither snitches, they each serve one year in prison. If both snitch, they each serve two years. If only one snitches, one goes free, and the other serves three years in prison. Defecting has the obvious advantage of protection against being snitched on and the possibility of being set free. Now you might be wondering, what in the actual hell does that have to do with Milton Friedman's consumption model? Well, you see, there's a version of The Prisoner's Dilemma designed by Douglas Hofstetter that is actually based on economics. So in this situation, we're going to be talking about a product that is exchanged in a box. One product is Air Force Ones and the other product is money. Both of them are in boxes and both the buyer and the seller are holding boxes. Now, the buyer and the seller could choose to exchange money for shoes or they could choose to uh, trade empty boxes for money or empty boxes for shoes or they could trade two empty boxes. So here's how this works. If the buyer agrees to pay the seller and the seller agrees to sell, then the buyer and the seller exchange the boxes. The seller receives the money and the buyer receives Air Force Ones. They open up the boxes and boom, they have a good exchange. Now, if the buyer agrees to pay but the seller refuses to sell, then the seller takes the money but keeps the Air Force Ones, which means the buyer opens up a box full of nothing. Now, if the buyer refuses to pay and the seller agrees to sell, the buyer takes the Air Force Ones, but when the seller opens up the box, he gets no money. Now, if the buyer refuses to buy the shoes and the seller refuses to sell the shoes, they'll exchange two empty boxes, and when they open them up, neither one gets a goddamn thing. No shoes, no money. The relationship between Friedman's consumer matrix and the prisoner's dilemma is unique. Unlike the prisoner's dilemma, Friedman's matrix requires information to reach the best decision of highest marginal utility and best value, which homo economicus can only achieve by defecting from the cooperative solution. For homo economicus, the exchange of money for something else must meet the highest possible value. Therefore, homo economicus should always defect. If homo economicus, or economics in general, is fully informed, meaning it is aware of the needs of the other party, then homo economicus should not defect because a better outcome for both parties is possible from cooperating, and because they are communicating, their cooperation should be guaranteed. Communication is therefore key to cooperation, and in the absence of information, Friedman's rational economic man can only make a one-sided decision, withhold money because you might not get anything in return. In other words, self-interest. If we were to apply this analogy to economic theory in general, for example, student loan forgiveness, then economics falters because homo economicus, or the economic man, or the rational human, or the government, they all have the necessary information to justify loan forgiveness. For example, and perhaps most importantly, the well-understood boost in the overall economy from a $1.9 trillion debt being lifted off American citizens, a robust and well-educated workforce that has become a necessity with technological advancements. But economics acts as if it must make the decision to relieve student debt in isolation, and it also assumes that the other party, or those whose debt is being forgiven, it assumes that the other party will defect, even though economics knows very well that the American workforce cannot defect. No matter what, when we go to work, we pay taxes, we make student loan payments, we shop at Ross fucking dress for less. What more information does Homo economicus have at his disposal? Say, historically, we had an example of a major debt cancellation and reduction that resulted in one of the most consequential economic boosts of the 20th century. Would that be enough information? Because we do indeed have the 1953 London Debt Agreement between the Republic of Germany and creditor nations, which canceled 50% of Germany's external debts. 
While such a scheme was radical at the time, quote, nevertheless, what the LDA shows is that debt relief can help stimulate growth and provide the foundations for more equitable fiscal outcomes. In fact, creditors received a substantial amount of their money back by linking the repayment of rescheduled debts to Germany's ability to grow. The debt restructuring proved to be a success, and while there had been a problem of debt just prior to 1953, a decade later, there was none. Moreover, it is not the mere relief applied to the German finances that demands our attention, but the philosophy of the agreement, namely, to make a contribution to the development of a prosperous community of nations. End quote. Meanwhile, in terms of other parties, such as corporations and the super-rich, Homo economicus cooperates in spite of the knowledge that those parties always defect through tax breaks, tax evasion, bailouts, subsidies, offshoring, environmental damage, union busting. The aggregate result is that Homo economicus does not operate as the rational, abstract human it is proposed to be. It willingly makes bad decisions with all available information telling it that it is receiving neither good value nor good utility. That's why economics is fucked and why Milton Friedman is an asshole, because it's all bullshit and everybody knows it. We just, we have the ability to achieve maximum value and utility. We're just not that into it. Friedman's lifetime contribution to economics was an uninhibited rationale for the complete and total freedom of markets completely untouched by government. This meant that among contemporary conservatives, Friedman held bizarro world beliefs that have been conveniently ignored by those who spout some of Friedman's specific economic theories for political posturing. Trump, for one, played many of Friedman's best hits to his voter base while doing the very things Friedman warned against. For example, Friedman's free market principles extended to street drugs. They shouldn't be on the street, they should be in a store. There should be a premium heroin and discount heroin sold alongside naloxone for responsible drug use. A side benefit being that the heroin store doesn't lose customers to overdose. Trump believed executing anyone associated with drugs and drug use was justified in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Friedman was also against farm subsidies. It isn't the government's role to finance the losses of a risky profession, but it would be the government's role to provide some sort of public assistance for the poor. Trump played the opposite hand. Similarly, the government should still pay for education but not attempt to provide it. Freeman argued this would be akin to providing food vouchers and requiring recipients to spend them at a federal grocery store. Friedman was also a proponent of a minimum income provided by the government, while at the same time abolishing the minimum wage. But ask a Trump supporter if they agree with Friedman, and you'll be surprised that they blindly believe they are. You see, when you get down to what economics really is, what is sold in politics is not what is advertised. So... Can you opt out of capitalism and attain evolutionary cooperation that understands defection by default, results in objectively bleak results for one or both parties? Sure, why the fuck not? The U.S. currency we utilize is backed by the debt of the U.S. Treasury, and it inherently has negative value. That it can purchase anything is, again, one of those handy fictions we tell ourselves. The U.S. dollar represents an amount of credit we can use to offset the credit of another party. As long as we rely on debt service to earn a living, we are hardly capable of autonomy. We will always be at the mercy of something to be paid. This is the life we have born into, but don't necessarily agree with. It comes with a lot of built-in faults like violence, mental illness, environmental destruction, and hate that we didn't ask for. It comes with operational systems that exacerbate those faults, and as we go through life, we are increasingly faced with decisions made for us at our own expense. That's kind of a lot of shit to live with. If you could just, like, turn it off, that would be kind of okay. So here's where I use my advanced business degree to tell you a few truths about how corporations work. First, every contract, every contract, is negotiable. You might not be able to negotiate the terms of a credit card contract up front, but when you stop paying and they sue you, you find out that your agreement to pay credit card debt is quite negotiable. A credit card company will accept up to half your total balance if paid in a lump sum. Even when they take you to court and all seems lost, you'll meet with the collection attorney out in the courthouse hallway and come up with a payment agreement that has nothing to do with the payment terms you originally agreed to, while at the same time 
not accruing additional interest. Now, I'm not telling you this to encourage you defaulting on your credit cards. Do not do that. But I tell you this fun fact because you did not sign a contract agreeing to be indebted from birth. That would be a violation of your most basic human right to autonomy or the freedom to live as you choose. We face deadly challenges to this autonomy, racism, poverty, mental illness being among just a few of those challenges. We passively accept them or we can directly reject them. The Founding Fathers were afraid of you, directly rejecting the power of the opulent minority. The Confederacy feared and Neo-Confederates resent the rejection of slavery and the loss of wealth and power that went with it. Those fears, racial and financial, persist today among the wealthiest Americans, many of whom masquerade as down-to-earth politicians, and among some of the poorest Americans, the haughty little nobility, who believe themselves to be superior to other poor people with darker skin. And this brings me to the next business lesson I can offer you. Most businesses, including corporations pulling in huge profits, are insolvent at any given time. Many have assets that are difficult to liquidate, which is why the turn toward financialization has been so aggressive among global corporations. Many companies carry huge debt loads, a mix of short and long-term obligations. Short-term debt obligations are typically smaller but have higher interest, meaning businesses, corporations included, rely heavily on steady cash flows to make payments. They are in the same position we are in, utilizing debt-backed financial instruments. The shift toward financialization in the second half of the 20th century put them in the position of having to focus on short-term gains. They have to bring in cash daily in order to survive. While most could survive a recession, many could not withstand a deliberate targeted restriction of cash. Corporations actively seek consumer dollars to pay their rent in the market. If you've ever zoned out while watching YouTube or television if you're old enough to have had cable, you may have snapped back to reality in the middle of an advertisement and noticed that it seems kind of fucking desperate. Like, why are you saying your product name so many times? And what do half-naked models swimming in flower petals have to do with Chanel fragrances? And why in the absolute fuck is every other TikTok compilation just an advertisement for Stardust LEDs? And no, I don't believe that I have 5 to 20 pounds of toxic shit in my colon. Why the fuck is everyone after my money? Because those companies, like the rest of us, are swimming in debt and need your money to stay afloat. So they spend a shitload of money on advertising to get their product in front of you. And when you buy their shitty services or weird colon cleansing powders, you're agreeing to pay off a tiny piece of their debt with a little bit of yours, which you must then make up for by working. It's a whole thing. We are bombarded with advertising every waking minute of every day to create an environment of such inescapable pervasiveness that few purchasing decisions can really be said to be conscious, which is what inevitably follows when emerging markets are liberalized. Quote, It is inherent in the present-day international economy that a transnational company establishes subsidiaries and branches in many national locales in the expectation of selling its goods and services to the host population, as well as exporting the product wherever it can. Still, an automatic willingness of local populations to purchase and consume these products cannot be taken for granted. The mechanism of consumer persuasion and titillation carried to their highest efficiency in the United States are relied on. They are applied, sometimes with modification, to take into account national cultural specificities. The objective, whatever the national setting, is always the same, the creation of good consumers." End quote. But that's just like how society works, right? Well, no, that's how the market works, and you don't have to spend your money there. Buying local, buying secondhand, and repairing what you have keeps money within your community, which is really how society works, or should work. Hell, post-COVID, just imagine how many bread makers and Pelotons will pop up on Craigslist, and in the case of GameStop, you can even coordinate targeted economic attacks on corporations in the fantasy land of the stock exchange. You don't even have to spend money in the market. Let's talk about not dollars, the equity-based alternative to the treasury-backed currency. Not dollars is a thing I made up because it could be a real thing. The U.S. government has a monopoly on domestic currency, but... Not all domestic currency, only U.S. currency. You and I cannot print $1 bills with George Washington's slave-owning face on them and pass them off as U.S. government-backed bills. We can't print foreign currencies either. Think of them as the music rights to the entire Garth Brooks discography, carefully held and managed 
by Garth Brooks. You can only buy his official music at Walmart, and you can't stream his music anywhere. You have to buy it. The man's a fucking genius. U.S. dollars work the same way. They can only be issued by the U.S. government, but they are accepted by basically everyone because we've been over this. Anyway, you and I, we can print our own currency. We can call them fuck the rich bucks or Mnuchin Minotes, and if we agree that they have value, we can trade them back and forth for stuff. That sounds fucking stupid, right? Well, local paper currencies have existed for as long as people have been wanting to trade one thing for another, and they still exist. Like, right fucking now in Spain, where the official currency is the euro, there are dozens of local currencies. Barcelona's mayor, Ada Colau, ran on campaign promises in 2015 of introducing a new local currency for Barcelona with the intention of supporting local businesses, building wealth within the city, and maintaining employment. Promoting local businesses and independent growth are all the same goals wherever any local currency is implemented. The use of local currencies, depending on the place, is a combination of barter, hey, money must be expensive, and time banking, where services and skills can be exchanged for an hourly rate and have a cap on accumulation. The Mora, a Spanish currency, has a maximum credit of 300, at which they must be spent on services from someone else. A zero-balance system of currency that prevents hoarding and fosters continuous engagement. You still get to be an individual and do what you do. Walk a dog, fix a bike, give someone a lift. But you also happen to be being yourself within your community and building spendable hours doing so. Now, what other crazy fucking country has its own local currencies? Believe it or else, the United States is second in the world, only to Spain, with an ever-changing number of local currencies, many having gone inactive over time. That's kind of just the way they work. But several persist, among them Berkshires, which are based in the Berkshires, Goldbacks in Utah, PDX Time Bank in Portland, Oregon, Hobodo in South Dakota, Middletown Cash in Middletown, Connecticut, and Aloha Hours in Hawaii. Of these, Berkshires is possibly the most resilient, with over 400 Berkshires businesses as of 2021 accepting it as payment. The use of local currencies is promoted by offering users a discount where it is accepted as payment, and depending on how you want to look at it, local currencies are either one, complementary to the dollar, or two, discounts on the dollar in that they act as something of a coupon. This is the nature of having two currencies in use at the same time. Now, what's fun about alternative currencies, scripts, to the historian, is that they're quite the American tradition. Scripts were a boon to communities that had been hard hit by the Great Depression, and their use was bolstered by the widespread belief that people were hoarding their cash trying to wait out the Depression. Scripts complemented, or in some communities completely replaced, U.S. currency and went unchallenged by the U.S. government, the only stipulation being that no one could force the use of scripts. It had to be voluntary. In some communities, scripts were specifically for paying future taxes. Tax anticipation warrants were paid to municipal employees who could then use them as payment to local businesses, the thinking being that even though it wasn't cash, it was acceptable as a local tax payment. Teachers, police, librarians, etc., they got paid a tax warrant that was exchangeable as a tax payment to the city. Taxes, you see, are a giant pain in the ass for local currencies. You might be able to trade hours and make your own fun currencies out of G.I. Joe's or Sega cartridges, but they aren't exactly useful for paying taxes unless you can get the local government on board, or if the local government itself issues the scripts. But the federal government, even if you're strictly bartering item for item, still technically wants you to pay taxes and to do so in U.S. dollars. The other pain in the ass is that communities themselves don't exist in a bubble. The nature of trade in general is that even if we're not separated by Steve Mnuchin's pool, you still have to purchase some things from other places. A hardware store probably doesn't get its stock of hammers and wrenches from the local blacksmith. It has to order them from a supplier who definitely isn't going to take local script as a payment. Local scripts, by their nature, can only exist within the hyper-localized community that agrees to recognize their value. While this might seem like a drawback, it's actually quite effective when used within an existing community as opposed to trying to build an entirely new currency ecosystem. During the Great Depression, scripts were used among the unemployed as a replacement currency because, well, no one was getting paid dollars. Quote, in Minneapolis, a group called the Organized Unemployed ran a warehouse and store where the only circulating medium of currency was scrip. Unemployed workers received $1.50 a day to perform tasks like chopping wood, cultivating a garden, or canning sauerkraut. 
The group ran a restaurant where hot lunches cost 10 cents in scrip and a dormitory where men could sleep for 15 cents of scrip per night, end quote. Similarly, members of Harlem's Mutual Exchange issued script for skilled work redeemable only between members of the exchange, creating a completely separate economy unaffected by, but developed in response to, the failings of the financial system. More than anything, whether they are tax warrants or paper currencies or a ledger of hours earned, local currencies signify the innate responsibility of humans to solve the fundamental problem of trade, how to get what you need with what you have. That's comparative advantage all over again. People have skills, they have excess stuff, they have knowledge, they have brute strength, if nothing else, and none of it is made valuable by currency. It's made valuable because as humans, we recognize that one human doing a thing is valuable. We recognize it in ourselves first, and when we need a thing of value from someone else, we figure out a medium through which to exchange that value. Hell, the island nation Yap had a currency of giant carved stones that you could hardly move, so they just kind of stayed in place, and when you said your stone belonged to someone else, the ledger, which was an oral history, was updated, and because it was hard to move the stones, the stone sitting right fucking there never moved, but it belonged to someone else. You could have a dozen stones sitting in your front yard, and you'd be like, those used to be Becca's, but she bought a boat from Steve Mnuchin, and then he refused to pay for his new pool, so now they belong to John Travolta. And that one over there is mine, but I also have a few at Becca's house, along with the one John Travolta says he's going to use to buy another plane, but who knows? Also, Becca has one sitting in the bottom of the ocean because her boat sank while she was bringing it home, so obviously I'm short on cash right now. This is literally how a currency's oral history works. In the case of yap stones, they were large and unwieldy, and they did get lost at sea. So if you had a witness to a sinking stone, it still counted as part of the whole currency. As stones changed hands, the individual's accounts were updated by saying so out loud, at which point the transfer of wealth became part of the oral history. This raises an important point about currency in general. If every exchange and every account is public knowledge, it doesn't matter where the currency is, in your hand or at the bottom of the ocean. The public knowledge of all exchanges and funds at all times ensures that accounts are always up to date. And then there's fucking Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like any other currency, a thing with no value other than what we give it. But Bitcoin and other digital currencies, obviously, has more in common with Yapstones than any other currency. Yapstones did not come from a central bank or have a single issuer. They were individually sourced, same as Bitcoin. So there could be no central bank. Who could you possibly trust to hand over all your currency to with the expectation that they wouldn't just, say, abscond with it or hand it to their friends? <clears throat> Federal Reserve. In the absence of the trusted third party, a central bank, Bitcoin, instead keeps a time-stamped ledger of all Bitcoin transactions, a digital oral history if you want to think of it that way. Every timestamp includes the previous timestamp, and so on, in a chain. Blockchain. Also like Yapstones, the work put into Bitcoin is what verifies its value. You can't just say you have a stone. It has to be witnessed. For Bitcoin, this is the so-called proof of work. Bitcoin gets really techy really fast, so I'm just going to translate it into dum-dum, because that's how I understand it. Uh, say I buy two Papa John's pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin, because it's 2009 and it's internet money, so this is hilarious. For what it's worth, one Bitcoin is now currently worth 56,000 US dollars. Anyway, every nerd with a computer who thinks Bitcoin is the next big thing gets notified of this transaction as well as any other transactions in a database, or block, of transactions. Those nerds' computers go to work scanning the block's cryptographic signature, or hash, embedded in the chain of interactions. That's the blockchain. This is the proof of work. Once a computer has its proof of work, it broadcasts the verified block to all the other nerds. All of the other computers accept the block if it is valid and the Bitcoin hasn't changed hands again. Nerds don't control whether the block is valid. It's all magic computer math. But the block is verified and cleared as evidenced by the creation of a new block and the generation of new Bitcoin. And then it starts all over again. It's the exchange of Bitcoin in general and the computational effort required to verify the history of Bitcoin exchanges specifically that give Bitcoin its value. Bitcoin has an interesting distribution function as well. 
Only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be produced, and as of March 2021, over 16 million were in circulation. So the currency is limited. But every time the currency hits a specific milestone, the mining effort required is doubled. That's how I interpret the block reward method. Block rewards are the volume of new Bitcoin delivered with each successfully mined block, or verified transactions. Every 210,000 verified blocks, the block reward is halved. Alternatively, the effort required to mine Bitcoin doubles. In 2009, 50 Bitcoin were rewarded with a successful block, and in May 2020, the reward had fallen to 6.25 Bitcoin per block. I prefer to use the double effort interpretation because it's easier to understand why these milestones are important. As mining effort increases, the value of Bitcoin rises to meet inflation. Bitcoin is not scarce, it is finite. We don't know how much gold there is on the planet, so mining for gold is ambitious and finding it is fortuitous. But we know exactly how much Bitcoin will exist, so mining it and receiving it is nothing less than pragmatic. Successfully mining all Bitcoin isn't anticipated to occur until 2140, at least that's the rumor on the internet. Because Bitcoin transactions aren't verified by a central bank, verification is outsourced, the parties to a transaction don't have to be identified by any conventional method. Instead, they have a digital wallet with a security key and transactions are encrypted. You can follow the transfer of every single Bitcoin to its creation on the ledger but they are traced by the user's wallet signature, not their personal information. Still, if you can pin an individual to one transaction, you can use their digital signature to trace all their transactions. So why discuss scripts, time banking, and cryptocurrencies? Be because you asked if we could just opt out of the market in general, and I said, sure, why the fuck not? But we already have the means and knowledge with which to achieve it, and the rise of digital currencies solves the central bank or central issuer problem of all other currencies. Transactions are kept private and are limited to the two parties involved, and the system is kept alive by the production of currency in exchange for verifying the currency's transactions. So how does a decentralized currency, whether local or crypto, solve the issue of bad economics to begin with? And what if governments start hoarding cryptocurrency or try to base their real currency on cryptocurrency? What fun, practical questions. Let's start with the idea that, of all things, a central government and its banking system should be in charge of maintaining dollar values at all. Don't take it from me. Take it from the Congressional Research Service. Quote, Currently, the vast majority of money circulating in most economies is government-issued fiat money, and so governments, particularly credible governments in countries with relatively strong, stable economies, have effective control over how much is in circulation. However, if one or more additional currencies that the government did not control, such as cryptocurrencies, were also prevalent and viable payment options, their prevalence could have a number of implications. The widespread adoption of such payment options would limit central banks' ability to control inflation, as they do now, because actors in the economy would be buying, selling, lending, and settling in cryptocurrency. Because cryptocurrency circulates on a global network, the actions of one country that buys and sells cryptocurrency to control its availability could have a destabilizing effect on other economies that also widely use that cryptocurrency. In this way, one country's approach to cryptocurrency could undermine price stability or exacerbate recessions or overheating in another country. For example, as economic conditions in one country changed, that country would respond by attempting to alter its monetary conditions, including the amount of cryptocurrency in circulation. However, the prescribed change for that economy would not necessarily be appropriate in a country that was experiencing different economic conditions." End quote. The control of dollar circulation and inflation are the core functions of a central bank that also provide its governing authority with a host of rights over those who use the currency, including security and identification measures, taxation, and spending power. Now, while we don't need to dive into all the reasons a government should not track its citizens, I'll condense this point to the subject of spending power. In the event of recession, the banks become the protected class with historically little consideration given to the general public. Citizens don't get losses on investment portfolios returned to them after a downturn. They don't get government protection to keep them from being evicted or foreclosed on. They don't get the option to join a public employment program. But financial institutions and major corporations do receive massive government bailouts and, in the case of the Fed, get to establish their own interest rates to manage the fallout from bad economic behavior. A currency that takes the cushion away from those who get rewarded for their incompetence 
is understandably a threat to those who consistently fail upwards. On the notion that a government buy-up of cryptocurrency could negatively affect economies on a global scale, I have to say the congressional report sounds particularly cheeky. After all, Perkins describes the very same exact thing that happens to lesser foreign economies when the dollar falters. Perkins' natural inclination to buy up cryptocurrency as a check on inflation is a good argument against central banking, primarily because even in this detailed report, it doesn't even grasp how crypto works. Were a central authority to attempt to purchase mass quantities of cryptocurrency or currencies to control distribution, its own demand would exponentially increase the price it pays, while at the same time, one, increasing demand for the currency and encouraging dollar exchanges to Bitcoin, two, see a natural devaluation to offset inflation, Bitcoin itself is divisible down to one one hundred millionth of one Bitcoin, and three, it would encourage divestment to another cryptocurrency. Bitcoin's finiteness and public ledger guarantee that a hoarded amount of currency could be offset from the total in circulation. The U.S. and any other government would be in a losing position from the start by sinking money into an exponentially cost-prohibitive and energy-intensive attempt to control what it cannot control. The democratic, egalitarian democratic, not political democratic, The democratic control of cryptocurrency is built into its verification process. It is non-negotiable and relatively incorruptible. It is, in short, everything that a government-run Ponzi debt scheme is not and cannot be. It also has the potential to become the de facto complement to standard government-issued currency. As a consequence, cryptocurrency also has the legacy of its public ledger available for anyone to sort through, including government agencies that would like to track financial transactions. At present, this has the veneer of serving the public good. Takedowns of online companies like Silk Road, the dark web superstore for drugs, guns, stolen credit cards, anonymous SIM cards, counterfeit money, and malware set the tone for digital surveillance overall. Bad things are happening in the anonymity of the internet, so that anonymity must be pierced. Cryptocurrency can be seized like any other asset, and the tax liability for crypto assets provides a starting point for programmer sleuths to initiate an investigation. IP addresses and cryptographic signatures can be traced from the beginning to the end, which is how Ross Ulbricht, founder of Silk Road, which provided illicit fun stuff to over 100,000 customers and had over $1 billion in Bitcoin seized, was busted in 2013. It's also how Kalari and Sasha Sorotkin, online fentanyl and crystal meth dealers who called their operation Pill Cosby, were busted in 2019. It's also how 179 vendors across the U.S., Germany, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Austria, and Sweden were arrested in 2020's Operation Disruptor, Tor being the proxy networking service that reroutes users' IP addresses through multiple servers across the globe. These busts are a small part of a much larger international effort to crack down on internet crime activity. Encrypted chat networks and marketplaces are frequented as often by law enforcement as they are actual users, both of whom benefit by the invisibility offered by Tor networks, virtual private networks, and cryptocurrencies. The digital crackdowns are carefully branded to represent the dark web as the internet's seedy underbelly, with users labeled nefarious peddlers, pushers, and criminals without due process, mind you, operating in the shadows of the internet. It sounds, in short, like a really bad place you shouldn't venture, like going to the bad side of town. In reality, the dark web is much more complex than just being a place where you can buy guns, drugs, and child pornography. Those things do exist. Some estimates put the total share of dark web marketplace content at 70%, but they are not a function of the dark web itself. They are, however, used to exploit the lingering fears we have over crime in general. Where you once had to go out of your way to find black market goods and services, committing crimes now on the internet is as simple as opening a Tor browser. It makes everyone a potential criminal, and highlighting the negative aspects of the dark web obscures its true function. It provides access to information for those who may be otherwise unable to access it. Anonymizing web traffic and making information available to all is the last true democratic freedom available to those living in countries where information suppression and censorship are a rule of daily life. Tor browsers offer a workaround to otherwise blocked content, say, embedded journalists working in countries hostile to open information access. 
Reporters Without Borders keeps tabs on internet freedom, publishing reports on national digital predators like Iran, India, Venezuela, China, Egypt, Vietnam, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Israel, Switzerland, Italy, the United States, Spain, and Germany. Governments use techniques as basic as cutting off landline internet access, all the way up to state-sponsored doxing, proliferating the spread of information, trolling, website and app blocking, activity monitoring, reinformation campaigns, spreading malware and spyware, and purchasing exploit discoveries and user data through companies like Zerodium, Memento Labs, and Gamma. These companies purchase these vulnerabilities called zero-day exploits. Hey, Zerodium, I get it. Anyway, they purchase these vulnerabilities and sell them back to corporations or to the highest government bidder, apparently, to bolster security. But some exploits are used for the express purpose of distributing malware or spyware and for targeting specific people, many of them reporters. In 2019, the United Arab Emirates, UAE, attempted to use mobile spyware to remotely access Ahmed Mansour's iPhone. Mansour, a UAE human rights activist, has been a major pain in the UAE's ass for almost two decades. For instance, campaigning against the imprisonment of UAE reporters who had been arrested for criticisms of UAE leadership, hosting an online forum for open dissent, and also tweeting his dissent. Mansour became subject to detention and torture, having been arrested in 2011 for speaking out against the UAE government and for owning a website. Not just any website, a website that was openly critical of the United Arab Emirates. Following his prison release, the UAE has used spyware made by Finn Fisher, Hacking Team, NSO Group, and Gamma Group. In 2016, Mansour received a text link that would have jailbroken his iPhone, allowing remote access to his camera, microphone, WhatsApp, and Viber messaging apps, and his GPS. By 2017, Mansour had been arrested again for more free speech crimes he had been tweeting, and was then isolated in solitary confinement for a year before being sentenced to 10 years in prison. The leap from tracking and spying on criminal activity to the suppression of dissent is nothing new. It is perhaps one of the oldest tactics used by oppressive states. The U.S.'s Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 enacted in response to the threat of foreigners and the support of foreign countries, specifically France during the French Revolution, toward which Democratic Republicans were sympathetic, extended the time to become a U.S. citizen from five years to 14. That was the Alien Act, and made it a crime to publicly criticize the U.S. government. That is the Sedition Act. The online democratization of markets and speech is the rebirth of the English commons. Go ask an old person who remembers the early days of the internet when chat rooms were a thing, when hilarious email chains, a hundred pages long created by weirdos from all over the world were printed out by friends in seventh grade and brought to school, when sending credit card information was at your own risk, when that one guy sold all his belongings on eBay just because, and when peer-to-peer -peer networks recreated that time-honored tradition of recording songs from the radio or creating mixtapes for friends, all of which occurred because people were put in direct contact with other people with limited interference. Like in closure, the narrowing of the internet's purpose has been to consolidate interests in favor of efficient, profitable commerce. The internet itself arguably no longer exists that way. It has given way to purpose-driven apps that connect us to each other in market terms, entertainment, fundraising, networking, while companies and governments attempt to restrict our direct connection with each other as they privatize a previously open public space. The dissemination of ideas once seen as a fundamental guarantee of the internet has come under attack both in terms of government surveillance and in the dumb fuck rants by conservative congressional leadership that doesn't understand a single goddamn thing about free speech in general. The openness of commerce, the ability to share and sell directly between peers, has become a source of revenue for intermediaries. Visionary market disruptors have managed to monetize nearly every aspect of the internet, which, in turn, has given rise to on-demand incentives for online shopping that also have a direct impact on workers. Amazon, for instance, places all warehouse workers under constant surveillance and limits bathroom breaks. The bathroom thing was well established, but the March 2021 news story of pee bottles in an Amazon warehouse put it into a more visceral context. Peeing in bottles due to time restrictions was a disgusting thing discovered firsthand by James Bloodworth while working undercover at an Amazon warehouse for his book, Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain. 
which was briefly removed from the Amazon book marketplace. Apparently, this has been going on for a while. Quote, on social media and in interviews, drivers delivering Amazon packages said the company's claim was out of touch with their reality. In lawsuits, books, and media reports, drivers have repeatedly said that they resort to urinating in bottles, bushes, and coffee cups because the number of packages they need to deliver or else risk termination leaves them no time to find a restroom. I bought a Shiwi and peed in bottles, former Everett driver Sosho Kyoso said in an interview referring to the funnel-like female urinating device. On exceptionally busy days, she said, I've peed my pants at work. End quote. In 2021, Amazon finds itself in a difficult public relations position. It suffers from an explosion of growth during the COVID-19 pandemic that has seen a huge demand for deliveries and warehouse staff. I say suffers because that means more workers have been exposed to Amazon's operational practices, which in the developed world means that roles can't be outsourced or automated. Deliveries and floor running are staffed at the highest prevailing wages in the world. Any collective action to make working conditions better or more dignified affects Amazon's ability to maximize profit in an expensive market. Shareholders want high returns, and Amazon's duty is to thwart any attempts that would threaten those returns. Amazon's union-busting attempts have become mainstream news, as have its attempts to restrict communication between employees. Amazon's surveillance and suppression techniques don't target individuals, but their entire labor force. The contact information of hundreds of thousands of entry-level warehouse employees was deleted from the Amazon phone tool directory in March of 2021. It was written off by Amazon spokeswoman Brittany Parmley as a way for frontline employees to, quote, have the A to Z app to support their specific needs, and it's optimized for a mobile-first experience with information about pay, schedules, team structures, company information, and more, end quote. That means that communication between workers no longer serves their specific needs. Surveillance and suppression by governments and corporations don't exist in isolation. They're not even separate things. The need to monitor and limit interaction to become an intermediary to all interpersonal transactions, whether financial or political, is the foundation of exploitation and oppression. The irony of corporate privatization and the dogmatic belief that private markets are fundamentally superior to the common good is that its cost is the right to individual privacy and dignity. In the interest of preventing internet crime, our expectation of online privacy must be minimal. In the interest of protecting the state, monitoring the activities of citizens must be constant. To maximize efficiency and profit, worker schedules and interactions must be strictly controlled. These are all forms of tyranny, and they all have economic roots. It's possible that most of us believe in the inherent power of numbers, which is overwhelmingly true but not representative of truth. The invisible hand theory of economics dictates that humans are naturally free marketeers. Those wishing to serve their own interests by default serve others. A good product guarantees customers and fair reward. Voters believe, or hope, or something, that because their numbers are bigger, their interests are served. That if causes gain enough support, they will enter the sphere of public service. The belief in the majority and the inherent benefits of the market make a great story. It is one thing to assert this point, another thing entirely to study it and give it context. Martin Guylands and Benjamin Page write in their 2014 study of 1,779 policy decisions, <gasps> testing theories of American politics, elites, interest groups, and average citizens, <sighs> that the political power of the elite class to override the interests of the lower classes, at times conspiratorial and at times blatant, is fundamentally real. Quote, what are we to make of findings that seem to go against volumes of persuasive theorizing and much quantitative research by asserting that the average citizen or the median voter has little or no independent influence on public policy? As noted, our evidence does not indicate that in U.S. policymaking, the average citizen always loses out. Since the preferences of ordinary citizens tend to be positively correlated with the preferences of economic elites, ordinary citizens often win the policies they want even if they are more or less coincidental beneficiaries rather than causes of the victory. Further, the issues about which economic elites and ordinary citizens disagree reflect important matters, including many aspects of trade restrictions, tax policy, corporate regulation, abortion, and school prayer, so that the resulting political losses by ordinary citizens are not trivial. Moreover, we must remember that in our analyses, the preferences of the affluent are serving as proxies for those of truly wealthy Americans who may well have more political clout 
than the affluent and who tend to have policy preferences that differ more markedly from those of the average citizens. Thus, even rather slight measured differences between preferences of the affluent and the median citizen may signal situations in which economic elites want something quite different from most Americans and they generally get their way. What kind of leverage must a group exert, even a group as small as a wealthy elite, in order to achieve its policy goals overwhelmingly against the interests of the majority of citizens? If our interests as individual voters, whatever those are, social justice or gun rights, are matched by coincidence to the interests of those most served, it stands to reason that their interests are more closely aligned within their own elite group, spanning across party lines, than within their specific parties. To put it another way, the chasm between the left and the right is manufactured and exploited to split what would otherwise be a unified electorate whose interests far outweigh the minority interests of those at the top. That we have ceded privacy to the state and private interests to the corporation is not a coincidence. Economic market control is only achievable under strict social control. If free association among individuals occurred without intervention, without media narratives that drive differences deeper, the direct threat to control would be very real. While the promise of decentralized currency, online collectivization, and sustainable direct peer connections are very real, they make excellent targets for bad actors. We are increasingly faced with questions that would have been unthinkable a decade ago. Should politicians and hate speech be banned from social media? Does corporate censorship carry the same weight as government censorship, or is there even a difference? Do we possess the wherewithal to distinguish ourselves, our actual individual persons, from market narratives, ad campaigns, social media messaging, and punditry? Quote, For mainstream economists, decisions on what to buy are made by rational consumers maximizing their utilities in competitive markets. In this model, there is no scope for advertising to alter preferences. Advertising as an expression of power is rendered invisible by arguments to the effect that it merely confirms preferences or provides consumers with information. Today, the unseen influence of networks of computers known as cloud storage, owned by virtual companies like Google and Facebook, on the tastes, ideas, and purchases of their mainly young users is largely ignored by mainstream enthusiasts for the market. End quote. The same can be said for most of the public sphere in 2021. Are the virulent echo chambers of both the left and the right reflections of rational wholesale values, or are they amplified narratives that grant leeway to the parties who benefit from their continued dysfunction? To what degree our political beliefs are guided by individual principle as opposed to the recirculation of specific ideas may well be a subject that is entirely ignored. It would be difficult to parse out and equally difficult to separate the political and economic consequences that we can at once be reliant on and exploited by the same technologies that provide historically unparalleled freedom, access to valuable material like education, art, news, science, etc., access to people, and access to organizations from all over the world. That should be an indicator of exactly how precious our unknown or assumed freedoms are. We should have the right to free and open internet, which assumes the right to privacy. According to Friedman's principles, the same ones touted by insincere neoliberals on the right, corporations like Twitter and Facebook have the absolute right to restrict what its users post, disinformation, along with the absolute right to allow the exchange of any information between two parties without interference, peer-to-peer -peer sharing. And we, the customers, therefore, have the right to make a rational choice as to whether a service that restricts speech is worth patronizing. And the corporation, at that point, has to determine if certain information is adding value or not. Perhaps Friedman's best-known writing is his September 13, 1970 article in the New York Times, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. That's the title. It's a love letter to the non-person person, the corporation, which can be absolved of any and everything. Quote, What does it mean to say that business has responsibilities? Only people have responsibilities. A corporation is an artificial person, and in this sense may have artificial responsibilities, but business as a whole cannot be said to have responsibilities, even in this vague sense. End quote. But even this assertion is at odds with Friedman's claims about the state in general. The corporation, merely an artificial person with no responsibilities and no moral restrictions other than what is allowed by law, 
is seen not only as an entity completely separate from the government, but an entity completely unlike government. That is, while a corporation can be run by either a psychopath or a philanthropist, the decisions of the corporation will be determined by the market and therefore by the shareholders. Government, on the other hand, is a different story. As he wrote in Neoliberalism and Its Prospects in 1951, quote, a state with power to do good by the same token is in a position to do harm, and there is much reason to believe that the power will sooner or later get into the hands of those who will use it for evil purposes. The collectivist belief in the ability of direct action by the state to remedy all evils is itself, however, an understandable reaction to a basic error in 19th century individualist philosophy. This philosophy assigned almost no role to the state other than the maintenance of order and the enforcement of contracts. It was a negative philosophy. The state could do only harm. End quote. By its limited role, the state's ability to do only harm is apparent in its subtractive nature. Its enforcement of contracts and maintenance of order inherently requires the removal of rights from one party in favor of another. This is indeed an economist's perspective. The favor granted to one party must come from somewhere, and since in the market a pull on one side is a push from the other, the rights of one party directly infringe on the rights of another. Equilibrium cannot be enforced by the state, only mediation, and in mediation there exists a transfer of power. In a truly free market, it is hypothesized that an imbalance of power is impossible. Monopolies are the ultimate form of the corporation because they imply perfect market equilibrium. Whatever goods and services it provides are delivered at the highest marginal utility and value and therefore best serves the interests of the public and itself. According to Friedman's theory that the right to do good implies the right to do harm, which I myself have touched on with the right to use lethal force bestowed upon our police officers, those rights are only exercised and their outcomes determined by the hands in which they rest. In the hands of tyrants, tyrannical government will prevail and its capacity for harm will be realized. Returning to Friedman's analysis of the corporation, the corporation can do neither good nor harm because it has no inherent responsibilities. The corporation, removed from those who run it, exists within the market completely on its own, responding neutrally to demand input. Without input, it is an idle machine. This philosophical exercise poses a serious but simple concern about the constructs of good and harm. If in the hands of benevolent leaders a government does benevolent things, of apathetic leaders it does as little as possible, and of malicious leaders it does destruction, those observing, according to Friedman, have the wherewithal to judge the outcome according to the actions. The state has no body and is no more a person than a corporation. Where, then, is the responsibility of the state to act other than how those in power dictate? Friedman's distinction is clear. The corporation is not the state, and granted the rights of a freed person thanks to the 14th Amendment, the state cannot act upon the corporation as it cannot act upon a flesh-and-blood person. But the corporation assumes rights that flesh-and-blood persons do not. While it is the primary responsibility of private citizens to not cause harm to other private citizens, the corporation, lacking such responsibility, assumes it cannot cause harm due to its neutrality. But, like the state can do only good or harm, according to those in power, the corporation, if indeed it does harm, must also be doing that harm as a result of those in power, not those who run corporations, especially not if they serve the shareholders, as Friedman asserts, but the shareholders themselves. In the mediation between the rights of shareholders and the rights of other private citizens against whom harm is done, the decision of the state must ultimately determine justification for the corporation in toto. If an idle corporate machine becomes deadly once in operation, if in its design it exploits, manipulates, pollutes, and perpetrates injustice, then as certain as the corporation holds no responsibility, it is equally certain that its existence cannot be justified, that the public must absorb certain costs or externalities from a corporation's activities is at odds with Friedman's absolution of responsibility. An externality is a cost or benefit caused by a corporation that it does not pay for or receive compensation for. Where we have discussed the responsibilities of the state and the corporation, we have found there is nothing human about either. Philosophically, they must be different. The state serves the public and the corporation serves the private. 
By that definition, the state has an obligation to me, you, and everyone we know. We are not served by the corporation, and as such, we are under no obligation, that is, we have no responsibility, to accept the corporation's externalities. We are equally under no obligation to accept its demands on us as workers. We do not lease our individual rights, and certainly not our dignity, to our employers in exchange for pay. We rent our labor and nothing more. The same is true the world over. Neither the corporation nor the state compensates us for absorbing the externalities of industry, and historically has given us the responsibility to pay for the pleasure of absorbing their negative externalities. For the United States, this includes taxpayer-funded waterway cleanups of industrial waste, as well as what is an international scandal and what should be domestic outrage, plastic. Man, Milton Friedman is indeed an asshole, and when you get inside his head, you really can't agree with him on anything. I mean, his solution to everything is just more privatization, more free market capitalism. The guy was a fucking sociopath. Anyway, this was part one of Unfuck the Poor, chapter 12, Milton Friedman is an asshole. And if you're wondering about the prisoner's dilemma, you can head on over to askaleftist.com where you will find the matrices and a, actually a lot more links to other iterations of the prisoner's dilemma. It's like a whole thing that people are interested in. Anyway, if I read too fast or it's hard to follow along as I read, check out the full PDF of Unfuck the Poor on the website as well. Anyway, we got to return to Friedman's asshole in part two. We...